Hello and welcome to St. Paul's United Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Mike Agnew, and it's good to have you listening to our sermons this way. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can go to our website at www.cherokeemethodist.com. Now today we are continuing our series of sermons we've been on for several weeks now, in which we are taking a look at Paul's letters in the New Testament. Each week we take a look at a different letter, And we don't necessarily get too deep into any one thing or another unless it's something that's really controversial or something that gets people's attention. But generally, we're looking at overarching themes and main ideas of these letters. Paul is considered to be one of the most influential Christian thinkers in history, second perhaps only to Jesus. I mean, that's how influential he is. He wrote most of what became the New Testament, His writings have been some of the most inspiring, like Love is Patient, Love is Kind, and like Death has been Swallowed Up in Victory. And then also very controversial, like when he says that women shouldn't speak in church, and if they have questions, they should ask their husbands at home. (laughs) So as we go through these letters, we're looking at both of these kinds of writings. You know, we're not going to skip over or ignore the hard passages. So this sermon series is called Reading Other People's Mail, which just reminds us that that's actually what we're doing. We're we're writing we're reading letters that are not written to us. They're just not. They are written to specific churches in specific times for specific purposes, some of which uh, aren't issues that we're dealing with. We are listening in to part of one side of a conversation. And so God can speak to us through the scriptures, but that's to say we have to do our homework when we figure out how God is speaking to us through the scriptures, because it's not just as simple as saying, oh, the Bible says this in a verse, therefore it's true still today, and this verse means it's true all the time for all people everywhere. It's not that simple. So, today we're looking at the letter to the church of Ephesus, the letter called the Ephesians. Now, this letter starts out really positive compared to some of them. Uh, He talks about how we're destined to be God's adopted children, we're ransomed by his blood. He talks about God's plan for the apex of the times, you know, kind of like the climax of the times. He says that God's plan is to bring all things together in Christ. Now, of course, Paul thought time was short and that Jesus would be coming back soon, and so he considered that to be near the end. But nonetheless, he was right that God's plan is to bring all things together in Christ. And, you know, Paul says that he doesn't stop giving thanks for them when he's praying. I mean, they just have a really good relationship. Then Paul goes on to contrast the old life with the new. So he says that once We were like dead people, meaning we were lost in sin, but God, who is rich in mercy, has brought us back to life by Christ. He says we are saved by grace because of his great love for us. Now, I want you to notice something there. It says God brought us to life with Christ due to his great love for us. We get this twisted up sometimes by an idea that's been going around that says that God can't stand to be with us or even look at us because of our sin. And that the only reason he can ever stand us in the first place or accept us is because Jesus died in our place, so that when God looks at us, he actually sees Jesus instead of us, so he can accept us. Although, I'm not sure if that's really acceptance if you think you're looking at someone else, or if you have to have a Jesus mask in order to be accepted. You know, I'm I'm not sure that's really acceptance. 
This kind of theology presents a hateful God who will only love you if you are either perfect or he thinks you're Jesus, right? (laughs) Because Jesus covers you, so to speak. That's not love. And we all know that instinctively. You know, we know that's not love. I mean, if a child was living in a home where parents expected perfection, and if the child made a mistake or did something even on purpose, that they wouldn't love their child anymore, that they wouldn't be able to be around them or even look at them, we would consider that an emotionally abusive environment, right? And if we learn anything about the Father through Jesus, it's that he is not hateful or abusive or manipulative. So anything that makes God sound abusive, hateful, or manipulative is probably bad theology. No, Jesus does not save us from God's wrath as though uh, the Father and Son are somehow opposed to each other or operating under different principles. You know, where God the Father is all about justice and Jesus is all about love and mercy. No, Jesus and God are one. Jesus once said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God was in Christ reconciling the world due to his great love for us, and he's not going to let something like justice or the heavy letter of the law separate him from us, and that's why he offers us forgiveness. Forgiveness is not about law, it's all about grace. All right, now for the main idea for Paul's letter, which is this. He says the Gentiles, or the non-Jewish people, were outside of the covenant because they were not God's chosen people, but now they are brought in and they become God's chosen people through Jesus. Christ made Jews and Gentiles into one group, breaking down the barrier of hatred that had divided them. Paul refers to this as the secret plan of God that is now being revealed in these last days. And so he says that we should live a life worthy of our calling, of being united, of being together. Uh, And so he gives some very practical things in Ephesians 4. He says, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so he talks about other things, other ways that we live, to live up to the calling that we have received. You know, we don't let the sun go down on our anger. Uh, No foul words, but only what is helpful and building up of others. He says, be kind and compassionate and forgiving to each other in the same way that God forgave you in Christ. And so God reconciles us through his love, but we are called to a higher calling. So Paul's saying we should not live as though we're not. Instead, we should live as children of light. Isn't it interesting that given all that Paul says about the unity of Jews and Christians, so many have persecuted the Jews or engaged in anti-Semitic behaviors through the centuries, including the church? Also, This is a reminder to us that we should be hesitant to divide people when Christ seems intent upon erasing the superficial superficial boundary lines that we place around people groups. Christ has come for all, so we should not seek division, but to build bridges. So how many relationships do you have with people who disagree with you on political or religious topics with whom you can discuss these ideas without judgment? It's pretty rare, isn't it? you know, so rare that we're told not to talk about religion or politics. But it may be that we just need to learn how to listen to one another's stories and get to understand and sometimes even respect how a person came to the conclusions that they have come to without having to agree with them yourself, but you can still be in relationship with them and be open about your opinions without having to judge one another. All right, 
Now, we need to address the controversial writings. In Ephesians 5, verse 21 through 6, 9, and there's also a shorter version in Colossians, but we'll focus on the one in Ephesians. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you now. It says, Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long in the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as you obey Christ not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with them there is no partiality. All right, so what are we to make of this? Well, Others have made plenty out of it, using scripture to subjugate women. I mean, how many women have been advised by pastors to stay with abusive husbands and to just submit? And believe it or not, during Civil War times, numerous sermons were preached using this and other scriptures to defend the institution of slavery as biblical and God-ordained. The Bible can and has been used to cause a lot of harm, and quite frankly, there's a lot of material to use. There are plenty of scriptures that either openly endorse slavery and viewing people as property, including not only slaves, but also women. Uh, there are places where women are seen as the, the prizes of war. Sometimes when people need wives, they snatch women or kidnap them. Uh, the Israelites are allowed to have slaves, just not from their own people, although sometimes they still did. And there's no charge if you beat your slave, as long as your slave gets up in a day or two, because after all, they are your property. I mean, we'd like to pretend that these verses aren't there, but they are. We want to wish that the Bible would act in a certain way that we want it to act, you know, like a pristine, perfect book that came down out of heaven, but that's not what we have. And instead of wishing it acted a certain way, we have to deal with the Bible we've got. A divine book, but a very human one. So what are we to make of this? Well, first... Slavery is openly endorsed in some places and at least accepted or tolerated in others. There's no mention of abolition of slavery as an institution. And that makes sense, actually, given the fact that the people couldn't imagine a working economy without it at the time. 
However, we do see the needle moving on the issue, such as in Paul's writings, because here and elsewhere he encourages humane treatment of slaves, and in other places he encourages the release of certain slaves. Now, the institution of slavery was abolished much later, mostly by overlooking the numerous scriptures supporting it and instead looking at the spirit and trajectory of the scriptures. In other words, centuries later, given what they knew about God as revealed in Christ, people could no longer justify slavery anymore, regardless of what some of the verses might say. And thank God they did. And we see some of the same principles at work here with women. You know, Paul is actually working with Roman household codes, which are basically laws that establish how the house should be run, the roles for men and women and children and slaves and so forth. To disrupt these laws completely would cause too much trouble, but Paul moves the needle by placing responsibility on the husband as well. Usually the the, uh, person who has the most privilege in society is not even mentioned in these household codes, but Paul spends the majority of his time on the husband. Also, we want to look at verse 21, which is sometimes separated out from the rest of the section by title headings. Remember, in your Bibles, title headings are not divine. They are placed there, and sometimes they can be more of a hindrance than a help. But if you have a title heading that starts at verse 22, you might read it very differently than if you start with verse 21, which says, to submit to one another out of respect for Christ. Right? So that changes the whole meaning here. And we can see the direction in which Paul is moving. So it's still not an egalitarian relationship, Right? He's still working in his own time, and he's working with existing Roman household codes. But nonetheless, he moves the needle, just as he does with slavery. And it took many, many years for us to move more towards where the Bible was pointing, but we're still working on it. But this just goes to show that we have to be careful about assuming that if you can find a verse that says something, it's automatically the be-all, end-all of what God is trying to say on the matter. This has gotten into us into so much trouble in history. I mean, if if that were the case, if we viewed every verse that way, many of us today would probably own slaves, and the world would be a much different place. Probably a lot less Christ-like. See, in both of these cases, with women and with slaves, we have had to look at the spirit of what the Bible is saying, and the direction in which it's moving, and rely on the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, the last section in Ephesians is about the armor of God. You know, the belt of truth, the shoes of spreading the good news, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and the helmet of truth. These are metaphors, since Christians at that time were generally all pacifists. But they describe what we need to focus on, but there's also an important truth here that I want to focus on, and that is that he says our enemy is not against people, no matter how different they may be. Our enemy is the forces of cosmic darkness and the spiritual powers of evil. Our enemy is the spirit of accusation and division. You see, in the Bible, the Hebrew word for Satan is not actually a proper name, but it's a title for a job. So it's always called ha-satan, or the Satan. So the Satan means the accuser, the one who accuses and divides. And this kind of spirit is the enemy of everything Paul is trying to write about in this letter. He says Christ has knocked down the barriers of division, but we keep wanting to set up new barriers. We live in a very divisive world today, and as Christians, we are to be about the business of refuting the Satan and instead working towards unity and bridge building, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
may it be so. Amen. God bless and have a great week.